Hello again. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. Uh, I'm pretty excited about the topic that we're going to be hitting today. We're on week number two of a series that we're doing here, obviously called Skeptics Wanted. And throughout this series, we're basically uh, taking taking a look at some of the stumbling blocks, some of the questions that come up, uh, some of the the things that are maybe hard to understand even about Christianity and uh, Jesus, the Bible, that kind of stuff. And so we're kind of taking a look at each, uh, a different one each week. And, and throughout the series, we're, we're saying, right, we can't answer all the questions entirely thoroughly, but we're like, you know, if, if Jesus is who he claims to be, if the Bible really is the word of God, if God is the creator, you know, different kind of thing each week, then there ought to be some evidence, evidence enough that a rational thinking, open person could look at it and say, you know what, I think there's something to this that would give us confidence to be able to put our trust and our faith in Christ, in the Bible, in, uh, in what God says. And so we're kind of looking at a different piece of that each week. Today, um, obviously, we're talking about science, evolution, and the Bible. And I think this is a, this is a significant one for a lot of people. This, it's been pegged, I think, in our culture that science and, and Christianity are at odds with each other. Science and the Bible are at odds with each other. And if, if you look at the evidence, the evidence, would, we, they would say, kind of all lines up on the science side, whereas this kind of stuff is, is based in no facts and no evidence whatsoever. It's, it's just blind faith and, and, and blind trust. And for a lot of us, that makes it hard to, to live in our culture and in our world going, how, how, how do we reconcile these two, right? How, how do we put these two things together? Because we see evidence and what's being taught to us all seems to fall over here, and yet we want to trust and we want to we look and, and believe in, in Christianity and the Bible too. And so today, I'm, I'm super excited. We've got, I've got a good friend. Uh, we were talking about it. Brian and Janella Johnson are here with us. They've been friends of uh, Tina and me since we were teenagers, right? I, uh, Brian and I were roommates in college. We've been good friends for years. Uh, and Brian uh, was destined to be a scientist. He grew up in a home with two different scientists. He's thought this way his entire life uh, and was uh, uh, a science major in college and then went off after college and got his Ph.D. in biochemistry from the Mayo Clinic up in Rochester, uh, Minnesota, and uh, is seriously, and he'll be embarrassed and uh, appalled that I said this, but seriously, one of the smartest guys I know. I always love to talk about stuff with him because he's smart enough that he can take these really big concepts and under explain them to me in ways that I can understand and, and grasp. And so uh, when we were thinking about doing this series, I, I emailed Brian right away, and I thought, man, you got to come and share. Uh, so I'm super excited to have Brian here with us today. Uh, and again, he's here just to in 30 or 35 minutes, we've got time to present a few things. And so he's going to present a little bit uh, of evidence out of his field and talk a little bit about science, evolution, and the Bible. And, uh, and then, again, we'll, we'll ask you to kind of make your own determination from there. So, Brian, why don't you come up? I'm going to pray for you, and, uh, and we'll get going. Thanks for being here. Can we give him a hand, by the way? Thanks for being here. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, thank you for Brian. Thanks for... Uh, uh, the man that he is and just the partner he is even in ministry. And uh, Lord, I pray that today as he speaks, that you would speak through him, that you'd give him clarity, that you'd give him peace. And uh, may your agenda be done here today, God. May you open our eyes and uh, help us to see uh, the world as you created it. Lord, we love you. We need you. We, we offer this time to you and just sort of open our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, so Russ only thinks that I simplified these things for him to understand them. I actually simplified them for myself to understand. 
And something you need to know about scientists is they're not necessarily always that smart, right? They, they often have learned a different language and they've learned to talk about some things, but they don't necessarily completely understand it all. Um, so it, it's good if you can take and simplify some of those concepts down and ask yourself some basic questions about them and make sure that they really make sense. Uh, you may have noticed that I walked up here with a great big pile of notes, and that's not really for me, it's more for your benefit. <laughs> if I don't have that, I'm likely to wander off and keep you all here for hours talking about this topic, uh, because it's something that's been really significant in my life, and I just want to make sure that, that I stay focused and, and stay on track. Uh, but afterwards, if any of you have questions and want to talk about something and, and hear me wander off, on, feel free to, uh, to come up and say hello. So as Russ said, I've known him for a long time, and I just want to let you guys know you're really privileged to have Russ, right? to have someone who comes here faithfully, who is dedicated to God's word and to God's people the way he, has, the way he is, and uh, I just really appreciate Russ. He's been an important factor in my life, uh, often and encouraging me, and I know that he's doing that for you guys as well. So it's, it's really special to have a man like that, that that stands here and leads this, this church. All right, so my own story. I, I, uh, as Russ said, I was raised in a home of scientists. My dad has a PhD in inorganic chemistry. My mom has her master's degree in biology. Um, I have a son now that's 23 years old and is in graduate school studying uh, for his PhD in organic chemistry. Uh, so it, it sort of runs in the family. I, I was inescapable for me. I was also raised in a church, and I was raised learning about the Bible, learning what was in it, believing that it was true. When I went to college, yeah. the time I met Russ, there was a real struggle in my life because I wanted to believe everything that I had been taught in the Bible, and I wanted to believe everything that my professors were teaching me. They were smart, intelligent people. I liked them. I was paying big money to learn from them. And it seemed like I should agree with the things they were saying. It seemed like they're, they're people who are authoritative and know what they're talking about, right? So this was a struggle in my life for a number of years. And uh, my own journey through trying to understand how my faith and what God says in his word fit together with science and everything I was learning about this world around me. Uh, it, it took several years for me to figure out how all of this fits together. And as Russ said, we're just gonna go through a tiny little bit today. Uh, so it might whet your appetite for it a little bit. Uh, for some of you, it might seem like, wow, this is really too much, this is too deep a science. But stick with it. Uh, I, I think there's gonna be some things that open your eyes a bit today. So I'm a biochemist, and I studied proteins. And so the example that I'm gonna walk through today is from that world. But we're gonna bring in a few examples from other areas of science uh, to ill well. I don't plan on shocking you with any kind of compelling new evidence. Everyone has the same evidence, right? Evidence being someone who believes in a creator of this world as a scientist who's an atheist has to uh, believe in evolution. So it's really, it really comes down much more to your philosophy and your worldview, how you interpret and how you handle that evidence as opposed to what actual evidence is, right? Because all evidence is interpreted. No evidence speaks on its own. 
All right, so let's go to some slides here, see if I can make this work. Hey, it's working, this is great. It was great. There we go. Might have. I feel like this is pulling away. All right. So I'm going to talk about three lessons from evolution today. And when I say evolution, we're talking primarily about the molecules to man, the illustration molecules, and this is the, the example we're going to focus on, and then you see a fossil skull over there on the right. This is actually a really famous skull, and it's, it's kind of a cool story. I'm not going to talk about that, but if anyone's interested in the fossil record, and particularly in what people's claims of human evolution are, I would encourage you to look this thing up. It's called KNMER1470. Kenyan National Monument is where it was found, East Rudolph site, that's the ER, fossil number 1470. That thing, there was a debate about it in the literature for better than 10 years. How old is this skull? And it really shook up all of evolutionary science. In the end, they settled on a date for it. it had nothing to do with science, everything to do with philosophy. They dated it by what it had to be dated in order to fit the theory, not by what the evidence said. So enough about that. We're going to move on into some other examples. Uh, and, and we're going to start right here in Illinois back in uh, the 1950s. There was a very famous experiment that took place. There was a guy named Stanley Miller. And he was a graduate student in Harold Urey's lab at the University of Chicago. He uh, did a very famous experiment, published paper, set off a flurry of other experimentation, and the experiment is now in pretty much every high school uh, and college biology textbook. Some of you are going to recognize this, you'll remember it. Some of you probably slept through it, or, or maybe you were lucky and you didn't have to, to uh, learn too much about this. All right, so this is the apparatus that was used, and I'm just going to walk you through a little bit of what's going on here and some of the chemistry that's taking place. So there's a, uh, a flask of water down here, and it's got a heat source so that it's boiling and you got water vapor coming off, and they've introduced some gases into this mixture. So there's methane, ammonia, water, and hydrogen gas. And that's important that those gases are there. So those pass through a chamber up here at the top where there's some electrodes, generates a spark. And when those gases get sparked, they create some other things and they flow down into this chamber. They get condensed with some cold water and they flow down into a trap down here and you have cool water. All right, so the story is that when Stanley Miller first tried this, he waited a few days, and he found that this water down in here was turning color. And he was very excited because large organic molecules are required to create those kind of color. It, there was basically dyes in the water. And what he found when he started analyzing that further is he found amino acids in there. And most of you probably are not terribly familiar with chemistry, but amino acids are the basic building blocks for protein molecules. Protein molecules do pretty much everything inside of every cell in your body. They're the little machines that make your cells work. So they create energy and, and do all sorts of things. So 
he was successful in creating amino acids from these gases, right? We've got methane, ammonia, water, and hydrogen. But what was actually taught out of that experiment, what I was taught in high school and again in college, and I've heard reiterated many times by other scientists, is that this was proof that life can be generated from non-living chemicals. Seems like maybe a little bit of a stretch. After this experiment was done, there was a flurry of experiments. There was all kinds of excitement and enthusiasm about that, and people said, I bet if we change the conditions a little bit this way or a little bit that way, we can make all sorts of other chemicals. We can get closer and closer to creating proteins and creating life. After about 10 years of experimentation, there started to be some doubt about that because they weren't getting all of the results that they expected. And then some mathematicians came in, and they started doing probability and statistics and things like that. And they said, listen, guys, you're not anywhere close to creating life. In fact, this is a complete failure. It's an impossibility that life could come from this kind of stuff. So fast forward another 10 years to about the 1970s, and you, you get this interesting phenomenon where in the scientific, scientific literature, all of a sudden, phrase that comes up called biochemical predestination. Well, it must be that there's something about these molecules that just makes them want to form life. It was inevitable that it was going to happen. And undoubtedly, you're familiar with some of the outcome of that, right? How many have heard that we've sent uh, space probes out to Mars? Did they find life? We've sent space probes to fly by Jupiter and Saturn, and Titan, the largest moon of Saturn, which is most like Earth. Do you know why we did that? We have a program, huge funding, huge scientific effort called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Why did we do that? Why spend all that money? Well, it's because of this concept, this philosophy that came out that said it's inevitable that we're going to have life occurring in all sorts of different places. It's inevitable, so let's look for it, and we're going to find it. Now, it's been about 35 years since all of this stuff happened, and there's still no sign of life. I think the, the only sign of life on Mars was put there by Hollywood when they put Matt Damon there last year. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so it's, it's really not science. It's more grasping at straws. So I'm going to run through a bunch of things real quickly. We're not going to dwell on some of these very much, but I want you to understand there's a lot more to this experiment than anything that I'm going to be able to share in just a few minutes with you. So there were some real challenges. Uh, if there was a primitive Earth atmosphere, I put that in quotes, there's no evidence that it contained those chemicals. All right, Those chemicals, methane, ammonia, water, hydrogen, it was a guy named Oprin, a Russian chemist, who said, if you're going to create amino acids and proteins, you must have these chemicals present. You can't have this atmosphere that we're all sitting here breathing today, right? Rich in ammonia, which doesn't really, or sorry, rich in nitrogen, which doesn't really react with anything, rich in oxygen, which will destroy amino acids and proteins. Okay, so there's, there's this whole myth about a uh, primitive Earth atmosphere, but there's no evidence for it. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. There's another challenge in that oxygen was completely left out, but there's evidence of oxygen. If you look in all rocks on the Earth of whatever 
And if you didn't have oxygen, there's actually kind of a problem there as well, because if you don't have oxygen, you don't have an ozone layer, you have lots of shortwave and longwave ultraviolet radiation, that also kills amino acids and proteins. So you'd have to protect them from that. A third challenge, amino acids were removed from the energy source. Remember in that diagram, they went off to the left-hand side and they ran through a condenser and got trapped in a cool water area. So they were separated from the heat and the spark that was necessary to produce them. If they had continued to be exposed to that, they would have been destroyed by that, those same energy sources. And number four, the products of the experiment would actually be next to impossible to create a protein from. So there were low purity amino acids, there were lots of other molecules present that would ways, there were unnatural amino acids that were present, there were only a few of the amino acids, there's 20 amino acids that make us all up, all of our proteins, and these experiments, and there was actually about 30 amino acids they created that are not in any of us, they're not a part of life. And then finally there's this concept of right and left-handed amino acids that were present, but None of you have any right-handed amino acids in you. They're all left-handed amino acids. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more when we talk some, some probability and some numbers. Bottom line, though, this is just amino acids, right? This is not life that was created. So the claims are a little bit outside of what the actual experimental evidence was. All right. So there's three lessons I want to talk about today. And these three lessons are things that you'll commonly see used in support of evolution. Uh, they, they permeate not only this experiment, this is just one place where you can see sort of an example of how the three are used, but they're used in arguments throughout all of evolutionary theory. And they'll come up in lots and lots of conversations. So you'll hear like all science supports evolution. Okay, we're gonna look at that a little bit you'll see people claiming that they can accurately extrapolate data. So they have a little piece of data way over here, and they're gonna draw a straight line through it and say, so you can see that and predict something way over there. And then third, given enough time, what's impossible becomes inevitable. It's just a matter of chance, right? And we got billions of years. All right, so let's look at this first claim that all scientific evidence supports evolution. So we just talked about an experiment, the Yuri Miller experiment, where, uh, where there, were, there was clear evidence of what the atmosphere should be, but they took that, they threw it away, and said, it must have been this because I needed to, right? So there's something you can learn there, and that's part of the reason they say all the evidence supports evolution is because anything that doesn't support evolution, they don't consider evidence, they just toss it out. Um, so theories of evolution are always in flux to accommodate new evidence and then just toss it out if or it doesn't fit. All right, so we're gonna look at another piece of evidence outside of the realm of biochemistry. So uh, this is a picture that I took up in the Boundary Waters. Everyone, anyone ever been up to the Boundary Waters? Northern Minnesota, Canada area, I see a couple of hands. It's a beautiful area. You see all of this giant exposed granite rock. 
And if you were to talk to a geologist, they would tell you that that is Precambrian granite. That's the bedrocks of the earth. That's the oldest stuff around. Um, when you look closely at those rocks, there's actually some really old markings that are in the rock. All right, there we go. Uh, so these are some markings that were on that cliff that I just just uh, showed, but this not, these aren't the markings that I'm talking about. These are only a few hundred years old, and they're pretty large markings. But if we dig in deeper than that, we'll see some fascinating microscopic markings in the rocks. So many years ago, there were some geologists who were studying these granite rocks, and what they did is they made very thin slices of the rock and then they looked at it under a microscope. So you could actually get a little bit of light coming through the rock. And what they saw were all fascinating bullseye targets. It didn't take them very long, because they're bright people, to figure out, I think I know the explanation. I know what happened. And so what they did is uh, they, ex they explained that at the center of each of these, you'll see there's like a little dot right in the center of each of these. And these are actually three-dimensional, right? They would be spheres, but we're just looking at a two-dimensional representation of it. So at the center of each of these, they figured out there was a piece of radioactive material that was trapped in that rock. And as that rock slowly cooled over millions of years, that, that radioactive center was trapped in there. And as the radioactive decay proceeded over the millennia, uh, it damaged the rock around it. And what you see in this little halo is evidence of the damage that was left behind in all directions around that radioactive particle. Okay, so that was great. They were very excited. It was really kind of cool stuff. They were able to look at some of these halos and identify where they came from. Uh, but then they had something that were really kind of puzzling to them because they couldn't identify what was it that caused that. So over on the right, you see a uranium radio halo. And you'll see that it has a particular pattern of bands around it, right? Those rings are a certain number of rings, a certain number of distance, or a certain amount of distance from the center. And uranium sticks around half-life of decay of that is millions of years, right? So it all makes sense. It was trapped in the rock over millions of years. It slowly decayed, left this, this radioactive halo. But then they found these weird things that they couldn't identify where they came from. It took them a long time to identify. They finally figured out it came from polonium. It came from a particular isotope of polonium, polonium-218. They were happy. They were like, hey, we figured it out. There's all these millions of things. We now know where they came from. They're polonium radio halos. But there was actually a problem with that. And we're going to get into that in just a second. So here's polonium-218, and this is a radioactive decay cycle. So it's going to go through all of these states on its way to becoming lead-206, no longer radioactive, and it's just safe and stable. All right? And you'll notice polonium-18 gives off what's called an alpha particle. Alpha particle is a big, bulky particle. It causes damage when it shoots out. It comes out with a lot of energy. So that's what's causing these rings or these radio halos. Beta particles will ignore because they're small and low energy. 
it didn't do any damage. But what I want you to see is there's a, an alpha particle here from polonium-218, there's an alpha particle here from polonium-214, and there's an alpha particle here from polonium-210. So along its radioactive decay cycle, you would expect to see three different particles coming out at three different energies. They shoot out in all directions, okay? So you see, um, you see the, the halo, the sphere that's created by it. And they shoot out with different energies. We know what the energy of each of those is. So you, you can see up here, polonium-210 is responsible for the inner ring. The middle ring is polonium-218, and the outer ring is polonium-214. Okay, so it all lines up. It makes sense. It's like a fingerprint that says, this was made by polonium-218. Now, enter the problem. Polonium-218, they didn't recognize it at first because you don't see it in nature around us. You don't see it in nature around us because it has a half-life of three minutes. So if you start out with a bunch of polonium-218 in three minutes, you're down to only half as much left. In six minutes, you're down to only 25% of it left. It decays really quickly. And the problem with that is 99% of the polonium-218 is going to be gone inside about 20 minutes, and 99.9999% of it's going to be gone within an hour. But if those rocks slowly cooled over millions of years, you don't have a radioactive particle left at the center anymore. You're not going to see this halo over here, right? That's going to be a molten rock. It'll be like an eraser on the chalkboard, just washing it away. The only explanation is that those rocks did not cool slowly over millions of years. Those rocks cooled very quickly, inside of an hour, most likely inside of 20 minutes, probably a lot quicker than that. I think these are the original rocks of creation from Genesis 1-9, and God left his fingerprints on them and said, this is mine, I did this. So this science was all published in the best journals. It was all reviewed by the best physicists around. Everyone agreed to it. Then it was tossed on the garbage heap, pushed to the side because they couldn't explain it. You won't hear them talk about it, but it's all published in their literature. So it's never been answered. All right, so not all science supports evolution. There's clearly some science that uh, is very difficult to explain and is often ignored or thrown out. All right, lesson number two. Data can be accurately extrapolated beyond the scope of an experiment. So I don't know if you guys remember the term extrapolation. I'll give you an example in just a second if you're struggling to remember what that means. Uh, but basically, it's evidence for one kind of thing offered to support something else. And the argument is, because we can see small changes within a kind of an organism, eventually, given enough time, those changes are going to create a new kind of organism. The problem with it, from a scientific standpoint, is that uh, extrapolation is very unreliable. So if you look at the... Uh, picture up at the top, we have a, uh, a bride here, and you can see from the data set that yesterday she had no husbands. Today she's going to have one husband, and this nice gentleman is pointing out to her that if you extrapolate out a straight line from there, by the end of next month she's going to have like four dozen husbands, and <laughs> so it's going to be a problem. <laughs> 
right? So we all laugh at that. It's clearly ridiculous. But when we're talking about evolution and, and putting up evidence in defense for evolution, we do this. We much more ridiculous than this, actually, and we're going to look at that. So the Uri Miller experiments showed data that acids can be created in a laboratory under very contrived conditions. And the headlines extrapolated way out and said life could be created from non-life. All right, so an example outside of biochemistry, peppered moths. You've probably seen this example in a textbook if you've ever been through a biology class. They're very proud of this. So peppered moths are very common in England. You see them in two different forms. Uh, there's a light-colored form and there's a dark-colored form. And if you go back a number of years before the Industrial Revolution in the 1800, late 1800s, uh, white-colored moths were very abundant, dark-colored moths a little bit rare. Uh, and then at the time of the Industrial Revolution, the trees got covered in soot, the white lichens on the trees died off, left the bark dark, and you saw selective pressures change and the population changed. So you can see a dark moth on, on a light lichen-colored tree really easily, right? It's a pretty easy snack for a bird. A bird can come down, find that, pick it off. It's no longer present to pass on its dark-colored moth genes into the population. Makes sense, right? Natural selection at work. Anyone see the light-colored moth on there? How many see the light-colored moth? Anyone still looking, going, hmm, I, I, I don't think it's there. All right, here's his head right here, and you can see his wings coming down this way. This is the back of him. Great camouflage. So that's why he was around and could pass on his genes, and you had more abundant light-colored moths in the population. All right, here's a dark-colored tree trunk, and you can see now the light-colored moth sticks out. He's a snack. Natural selection operates pretty strongly on him, and he doesn't pass on his genes. The dark-colored moths start to become more predominant after the Industrial Revolution. So what do peppered moths teach us? Natural selection is real. Uh, but what we're looking at here is not creation of new, new genetic material, not any kind of information being created or introduced into the gene pool. It's simply a shift in gene populations, frequency of genes, of material that already exists within a moth that's still unmistakably a peppered moth. So we'll call this horizontal evolution. It's variation within a kind, and I believe in it. In fact, I believe it operates more quickly than most of my evolutionist friends believe because I think it's all happened in a few thousand years since the flood, right? That's where we've gotten all of these species. Um, so, too far, boy. All right, so it doesn't really have any bearing on whether new kinds of organisms are used. You'll notice I just used the word species to talk about what's happened since the flood, but I'm using the word kind here. Kind is the word that God uses in Genesis, and that's why I use that word, right? Kind and species don't line up. Species is a very contrived definition, uh, something that even most scientists wouldn't really agree on, um, but it's a much finer detail than a kind. So if you really wanted to show that you have variation 
that leads to new kinds of organisms. What you have to show is something in the fossil record that is smooth transitions from one form, one kind of animal to another kind of an animal. Darwin himself said the greatest thing that could be urged against his theory, the greatest argument would be to say, hey, we looked at the fossil record and it doesn't show those fossils. He said there would be innumerable transitional forms. Not a missing link, missing links, like in the millions and billions, okay? And we don't have those. So the very fact that peppered moths are offered as the best example of one kind of an organism leading to another is very telling, right? Because if they had transitional forms, if they had fossils that linked one kind to another kind, that would be the evidence in the textbook. That's what we would be talking about here. It doesn't exist. So there's actually some fairly famous evolutionists who are quoted as saying things like, we have even less transitional forms today than Darwin had because we now know that um, a lot of the things they called transitions then really weren't transitions. So this is a phylogenetic tree of life. Uh, this is used to show how all organisms relate to one another. You'll notice that most organisms are actually bacteria or archaebacteria. All the plants and animals and stuff like that that's way over on the right-hand side of this. Okay, But this links everything together, and you can put these together in all sorts of different levels of detail. What you always find is no organism is a trunk, no organism is a branch, not even a twig. Everything we know is a leaf on whatever tree of life you construct. We can't show any transition. So life appears once fully formed. It's that way in the fossil record. Uh, I think the, the stat is uh, if, if we looked at the history of the Earth as a 24-hour clock, all of life appeared in two minutes. An explosion, like it just suddenly appeared, completely formed. What you actually see in the fossil record is a record of evidence of death and loss of life nothing new coming into existence. So Stephen Jay Gould was one of the best spokespeople for evolution of the last generation. He said, paleontologists know species don't change. They get a little bigger or bumpier, but uh, they stay the same species, and that's not because we're missing the fossils, it's because they stayed the same. They didn't change over time. So the evidence actually lines up best with creation. Right? It's a statement that God made in Genesis chapter 1 ten times. He said, everything reproduced according to its kind. Why did he say it ten times? I think he wanted to make sure we didn't think, did he really mean it? Did he misspeak once? <laughs> right? That he really meant it. He wanted us to understand something. Things don't change. They stay the same kind. They don't morph into something else over time. All right, and lesson number three, enough time makes the impossible inevitable. And the argument comes out, I realize it's unlikely, but billions of years, right? It's a long time. A lot of stuff can happen in billions of years. It's a big number. Uh, so it's convincing because big numbers, numbers of this magnitude don't mean much to, to you and me, right? We don't use those kind of big numbers most of the time, and so one big number versus another, it's all kind of the same. 
So the Uri Miller experiments generated amino acids, but then the claims trivialize what it would take to produce those materials or to produce life from those materials. So here's two proteins up here. On the left is hemoglobin, the right is an antibody. Hemoglobin's about 600 amino acids strung together in a chain. Uh, the antibody's about 1,400 amino acids all put together in a chain. There's actually bigger proteins. Titan is one of the muscles in your protein, and Titan is about 30,000 amino acids all strung together. Actually, about half a pound of your body is the protein Titan. There's lots of that. All right, so what would it take to create that? Uh, proteins are made up of the amino acids, like we said before, but amino acids come in two forms, right and left-handed. They're optical isomers, they're mirror images of one another, like your right and left hand. All right, so an average protein has about 445 of these things strung together head to tail in a chain. Uh, problem is, in proteins, inside of any living organism, you only have the left-handed amino acids. There's no right-handed amino acids present, but the Uri Miller experiments make an equal mixture of the two. So let's just say we want to uh, put together one protein, 445 amino acids, uh, from, uh, going on too fast, from uh, that equal mixture. What, what are the odds of pulling out a left-handed one once? That's one in two. A second time, another one in two. You string those all together, and you come up with chances one in two to the 420th power. It's not 445th power because glycine is one of the amino acids, and it doesn't have a right and left hand. They're the same. Okay? So two to the 420th power, what does that mean? Well, in scientific notation, it would be 10 to the 123rd power. That's kind of a big number. Right? It's got billions of years, we got 10 to the 123rd power. Let's call it a draw, right? Um, so this is that number all written out. It's one with 123 zeros. Remember, every time you add a zero, the number gets 10 times as big as it was before. It's a big number, but how big is it? Uh, number of hairs on the human head, 10 to the sixth. Sand grains on all of the Earth's seashores, 10 to the 22nd. Drops of water in all the oceans, 10 to the 26th. Inches across the known universe, 10 to the 28th. Atoms in the known universe, 10 to the 80th power. You get an idea that there are big numbers and then there are really big numbers? <laughs> right? Not all big numbers are the same. In fact, some big numbers might not really be big numbers at all. So, uh, Russ, I think you said earlier, 100 trillion galaxies, I think that's 10 to the 14th power, 100 trillion, right? So, there's big numbers, and then there's really big numbers. So, how big is that number, 10 to the 123rd power? To give you an idea, an illustration, imagine a snail, snails move really slow, moving at the speed of one inch every million years. This is a really, really slow snail. So we're gonna give him a job, he has to move the earth, one atom at a time. Atoms are really tiny, right? There's a lot of atoms around us. So he's gonna move the earth, one atom at a time, one inch every million years. We're gonna send him to the other side of the universe, and we're gonna have him bring it all back. It's gonna take him a while, isn't it? 
All right. Now, imagine the length of time it takes light to travel one millimeter. Anyone know how fast light travels? 186,000 miles per second. Right on. How far does light travel in, or how long does it take light to travel one millimeter? Let's just say not very long, <laughs> right? That's 18 times around the Earth in one second. So it's not going to take it very long to travel one millimeter. Um, so every time that happens, we're going to have one protein formed randomly from a right and left-handed mixture. And we're going to hope to just get one protein, <coughs> just one, of all left-handed amino acids, 10 to the 123rd power odds. All right. Which do you think is going to happen first? Ah. The snail would actually complete its task millions of times before you get just one all left-handed protein. That's a really simplified example. This does not do justice to the actual problem because the order of amino acids is important. You don't have function unless you have the right order or sequence of amino acids. The orientation of the amino acids matters. You have to react them head to tail to form a protein, but these would actually uh, stick together in all sorts of ways. And there's lots of other reactions taking place. So amino acids react with sugars, nucleic acids, other stuff in the mixture. And once you have a protein all put together, it's got to be folded right in order for it to function. And then break down. So proteins are unstable, they get easily damaged. All right, so what would it take to make a cell? There's a guy who did a bunch of calculations. He was trying to be really generous, and he came up with the number 10 to the 29,345th power. I didn't put that one on the slide. <laughs> yeah. uh, so a billion years is only 10 to the 9th power. If you looked at how many seconds that is to try and make it a bigger number, that's only 10 to the 17th power. Um, and you really don't have billions of years anyway for this kind of stuff to take place. You have about 100 million years between when geology says the Earth cooled enough to support life and when you see life appearing on Earth. It's in the oldest rocks. So some people who believe in evolution have said it's almost like it appeared instantaneously, right at the beginning. It didn't take any time at all. So that's why they come up with that concept like biochemical predestination. All right, so what can, we, what can we know from this? I think we can be certain that evol evolution of a first cell is impossible. Instead, I look to John chapter one that says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And Colossians chapter one that says, for by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. These are just a couple of verses from Scripture where God says he created. It's actually everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus himself talks about it. He says, hey, if you don't listen to Moses, if you don't believe him, how can you believe me? Because Moses wrote about me. All right. So I see I'm over time, so I'm trying to figure out how to wrap up real quick. Um, I want you to know that uh, I've just touched a few small things. It's not a simple topic. Like I said earlier, my journey lasted several years. So I want you to, uh, regardless of whether it, it just interests you, whether you have questions, whether it upsets you, I want you to dig into it. Look at it honestly with an open mind. Say, what does the evidence say? And try not to 
interpret it through your philosophy, or at least be aware of the philosophy you're using to interpret all of this through. Um, I'm grateful for the journey that God led me through on this. It took several years, I struggled with it, but I came out the end confident and convinced in God as creator. Just as he says in his word, he created, I'm responsible to him. He, uh, he saved me, sent his son to pay for my sins so that, so that I can be with him one day, something I don't deserve at all, right? Because I've screwed up a lot in life. But we have a loving God and uh, the evidence that he put on the earth around us is there to lead us back to him. I'm so thankful he did that for me. So thank you, everyone. Thanks, Dan. Let me just wrap up. I'm going to just, some of you, this might be uh, great. Maybe you're eating it up. For some of you, maybe this is giving you flashbacks to high school chemistry class or something. <laughs> you're like, what are we talking about? But let me just highlight, I mean, we, we wanted to take a little bit more of the scientific approach this morning. I know it's a little bit more classroomy, and so I apologize for that. And yet we wanted to show that there's, there's significant real evidence that happens. I mean, the, I just was writing in my own notes, just highlighting a couple things, right? The polonium-218, what does it indicate? It indicates that the Earth was created quickly, right? That it, it, maybe it's a, a little bit more like Genesis 1-1 describes it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, the, he went on to talk about, you know, there's, we don't really see transitionary forms showing the evolutionary journey, which there should have been millions and millions of those suckers, right? Showing, uh, you know, all life coming from one common ancestry, but <clears throat> we don't see that happening. And in the end, I loved the, uh, the different analogies of the likelihood of forming just one protein, one left-handed protein. And we, he talked about the snail, right? Kind of going, going back and forth and saying, actually, in, in the amount of time it would take to just randomly select 445 left-handed uh, amino acids, right, uh, in one protein, um, it, would, it, it would be quicker for the, the, the snail to move every atom in the known, uh, you know, in the world all the way to the other side of the universe and back millions of times over. You know what he's saying? with that, it's just not going to happen, right? It's just, it's just not going to happen in the amount of time that you have. And even if you could prove that, it still isn't showing everything that you need for life, right? I mean, this is just one protein that we're showing. It's still not a cell. And so it's improbable. Again, we go back to the beginning and say, could it be that the evidence is showing something a little different, that the evidence is showing, you know what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth that he spoke and everything we know came into existence. I would argue it does. We've only scratched the surface. Brian's going to be around afterwards. To, if you have more questions, if you want to uh, talk more, get some, get some resources, talk to him. He'd love to do that. I'd love to talk as well, although I know less. <laughs> but I can, I can share with you some of the resources I've read this week and in, in uh, years past. Uh, there's some great stuff out there that can take you further on your journey. Uh, our, our hope and our prayer, really, for this, this week was that it would give those of us that have faith in, in Christ and faith in God's word, it would give us increased increased confidence and boldness to, to say and to say, to believe. You know what? There's evidence that backs up what the Bible says, right? That I can have confidence in that. And for those of us that are a little bit, maybe maybe a little early in our skeptical journey that we've, that this has been a stumbling block for us, that, that, that this would be at least a step in that direction to say, you know what? Maybe I should go back and check out the evidence for what it really says, because maybe there is something uh, to this whole God created the universe kind of thing. And so hopefully we've, we've accomplished that today. Uh, 
I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we've got our offering. We've got a closing song, and we'll be done for the day. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious creation. We thank you for the way that uh, there is evidence that backs up um, uh, what you say in your word. And, Father, I pray for those of us, wherever we're at on our journey, God, that you would lead and direct us, that you would open our eyes to the truth, and uh, that we would have hearts that would be open, that the doors of our our hearts and our eyes and our brains would be open to uh, follow where the evidence leads. So would you, would you do that in us, God? We thank you for being such a good creator, for being such an amazing Savior and an awesome God. We love you. We just offer ourselves to you afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.